Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Brink Lindsay. I'm Vice President for Research here at Cato, and it's my pleasure to be moderating today's policy forum on uh, how ride-sharing should be regulated. Uh, ride-sharing is uh, the hot new industry of the last few years. Uh, almost all of us have heard about it or uh, experienced it as customers uh, recently. Uh, Uber and Lyft are the two big uh, players. Uh, and uh, in city after city in the United States uh, and now around the world, uh, Uber is popping up, delighting customers and infuriating uh, competitors and regulators. Uh, growth uh, in this industry can be uh, measured by uh, uh, market valuations. Uber, uh, earlier this year, uh, uh, there were estimates that it had a, a market value now of uh, some $17 billion. Uh, the competitive impact of ride-sharing can also be seen in falling uh, medallion prices for legacy uh, tech, taxi companies. Medallion prices in uh, New York City are uh, down double digits. Uh, the medallion market uh, in Chicago has basically ground to a halt, apparently because prices have fallen uh, so low that uh, sellers remain in denial. Um, the big economic question uh, confronting us uh, when we uh, try to make sense of ride-sharing's rise is to what extent is this a new and better mousetrap uh, that the uh, ubiquitous nature of smartphones and having an app uh, on your phone that connects <clears throat> uh, part-time drivers uh, with riders is really a new uh, important uh, source of value creation that creates new convenience and, uh, and uh, uh, really uh, <clears throat> busts open the supply of, of, uh, of rides, uh, or to what extent is the competitive success of ride-sharing basically due to the fact that they're offering the same basic mousetrap, but without having to pay all the uh, regulatory costs uh, that are borne by legacy uh, taxi companies. Um, I think uh, the obvious answer is it's some of both, uh, but the proportions uh, are uh, are important to nail down. Also, the implications are important to nail down. Uh, if indeed uh, a big part of ride-sharing success is due to the fact that it, is, uh, uh, it has liberated itself uh, from uh, taxi regulations, uh, is the correct answer uh, to <clears throat> let that disparity uh, ride, uh, to regulate ride-sharing like taxi companies, uh, or to deregulate uh, taxis? Uh, sorting all this out is going to be the business of today's panel. Uh, I will note that these economic questions also raise, uh, also uh, uh, are being dealt with, with the very interesting new politics of ride-sharing, uh, from how I've set up the issue of how much, uh, how intensively a new industry should be regulated. You might expect uh, the battle lines to be uh, drawn along conventional left versus right lines, with the free market right saying don't regulate, and the uh, pro-government left saying we need more regulation, we need more government controls on business. That uh, isn't really how it's panning out uh, to a significant degree so far. We're seeing a lot of, uh, of pro-Uber, pro-ride-sharing sentiment uh, uh, on the left of center, uh, particularly in the context of a broader skeptical scrutiny being focused by economists and policymakers on the left uh, on the, the broader field of occupational licensing. Uh, taxi, company, taxi drivers uh, are subject to a kind of occupational licensing, but in general, uh, 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 
licensing restrictions that require government permission before you apply a certain trade have been growing uh, <clears throat> rapidly in recent decades in the U.S. economy and have started to attract a lot of critical attention, uh, perhaps uh, most significantly uh, by uh, Alan Kruger, who's an economist at Princeton, who's done a lot of work with Morris Kleiner uh, on the costs of occupational licensing, and who was also President Obama's uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors and before that Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, so the fact that uh, he has uh, been an outspoken uh, uh, critic of occupational licensing and uh, a champion of Uber uh, is probably uh, of some relevance to explaining the fact that, that in the current uh, latest uh, uh, budget put forward last week by the Obama administration. There's an interesting $15 million item uh, encouraging states to study their occupational licensing regimes uh, with an eye to finding uh, which of those uh, regulatory systems are indeed uh, should be rethought and perhaps uh, redrawn. Um, this interesting uh, left-right convergence on occupational licensing and ride-sharing in general uh, has, uh, has added a new species to uh, the Washington menagerie. That's the Ubertarian. Um, uh, this is courtesy of a couple of journalists at City Paper, uh, and I'll quote, uh, D.C. is home to a growing and curious breed, progressive young professionals who bemoan the city's income inequality one instant and approach a black limo the next, asking, are you my Uber? Uh, who condemn the government for under-regulating the banks and for over-regulating businesses and developers? who lament the decline of American labor, but wish the teachers union didn't have so much power in DC schools. I say hooray for the Ubertarians. Sounds like uh, liberaltarians to me. Sounds like a confluence of, of uh, uh, progressives and libertarians uh, in uh, opposition uh, to those kinds of big government uh, that, uh, that tend to uh, uh, redistribute income up the income scale. Uh, but uh, here we're all about uh, debates at, uh, at Cato policy forums. So we reached outside the ranks of the Ubertarians for one of our panelists. Uh, but uh, from all uh, panelists here today, I, I expect we'll get uh, lots of interesting information uh, and lots of, uh, of, uh, of analysis to chew on. Let me introduce all the speakers uh, right now. Our first speaker uh, will be Mark Scribner. Uh, who is with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He joined CEI back in 2008, uh, and he focuses on transportation, land use, and telecom policy issues. Uh, our second speaker is uh, Cato's own uh, Matthew Feeney, who's a policy analyst here at Cato. Uh, he has a uh, newish policy analysis paper out on uh, is ride-sharing safe? I believe that's available outside. Uh, also, uh, today, there is an online monthly Cato publication called Cato Unbound, uh, and Matthew has the lead essay uh, in uh, this month's issue, which is on uh, the sharing economy. Uh, our final uh, speaker today is Dean Baker, who is uh, co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. Uh, he's written lots of books, uh, my favorite of which is The Conservative Nanny State, uh, which uh, uh, details all the ways uh, in which uh, right-wing supported policies uh, uh, regulate markets, uh, inhibit competition, and do so in a way uh, that redistributes uh, income upward. Uh, so uh, I, again, welcome all of you here and look forward to hearing what the speakers have to say. Mark, your turn. Please join me in welcoming Mark Scribner.
Well, thanks, Brink, and uh, thank you all for being here. Um, I have a uh, slightly different take on the title of Cato's, uh, uh, Cato's title of this, which was How Should Ride-Sharing Be Regulated? I'm going to be edgy and ask, why should ride-sharing be regulated? Um, I'm going to begin with a sort of a historical overview of where these transportation services regulations came from. Um, and it doesn't begin with taxi cabs. It really goes back to, here are two photos of um, New York. One on the, uh, the one on the left there is a jitney, uh, just sort of an out, uh, uh, a modified uh, vehicle that can carry a bunch of people in the back like that. Uh, and then to the, uh, to the right is a streetcar, and it was the streetcar lobby, um, the American Electric R Railway Association, namely, that first began uh, lobbying for anti-competitive regulations. Um, so that began just before U.S. entry into World War I and continued through uh, the Depression. But I will give you this, I like this quote, it's kind of cut off, it's from the Proceedings of the 41st Annual Convention of the American Electric Railway Association back in 1922. And they'd already seen some lobbying successes. So, um, and I picked the least readable font, uh, too. So, uh, in many instances, municipal action has solved the question, that question being the jitney question. But the uh, situation demands general power in regulatory bodies to prevent competition of jitneys and buses with essential streetcar service. And my favorite line, in the meantime, regulatory bodies and the public realize that transportation by electric railways will always be necessary. And I think we all know that that was not true. Um, so, but from here, they gained uh, you know, a lot of success going through the 20s. You actually started seeing um, a taxicab lobby build up, uh, entrenched, uh, an entrenched uh, market, a cartel. Uh, and that sort of proliferated through the Great Depression. Uh, by the 1940s, most US cities had adopted these anti-competitive policies. Um, and uh, that pretty much continued on until the uh, 1960s uh, when, you know, we first started seeing the general deregulatory climate in the U.S. People started questioning these things. Through the 70s into the 80s, we, uh, we saw some deregulatory efforts in a few dozen, uh, a few dozen cities with very mixed success. Uh, this is very controversial among uh, researchers, but there were some successes. Um, Unfortunately, we then saw a re-regulatory trend uh, through the 80s into the 90s. Um, the 90s, we also saw uh, a very successful deregulatory um, program in Indianapolis. And now we're at Uber and Lyft and these ride sourcing companies. So just to put this in perspective, unfortunately, this is the most recent uh, National Household Travel Survey data. But why I think the, uh, the Uber fight has sort of been overstated, nationwide, 2009, about 2% of trips were made by taxi cab. In DC, which is much denser, much more transit oriented, people don't own as many vehicles per household. Taxi, it's significantly larger, but we're still looking at under 2% of trips in DC made by taxi cab. Now, these are, there's a, types of trips, but again, let's put this in perspective. I think that's important. So, um, while there hasn't been a ton of research on where these, you know, the, the, on, on the trips specifically, the UC, uh, University of California Transportation Center did examine San Francisco with a survey last year. Um, and what they found, there's two interesting things. 
the induced demand, so the, you know, the, the, because Uber now exists, are people going to take more trips? Turns out it's very small. 92% of trips made uh, by Uber, Lyft, and Sidecar would have been made absent those services. And then I think modal substitution is interesting. Now, taxi, that's the biggest um, uh, uh, share substitution there, modal substitution there. Almost 40% would have otherwise taken a taxi. You combine uh, rail and bus transit, that's about a third would have otherwise taken mass transit. Then you get down to walk, bike, combined there is 10%. Now, for the people who say that these services, at least right now, are you know, letting people ditch their cars, leave them at home, very small percent of the trips made, at least uh, as, they, as they found in San Francisco, just 6% would have otherwise, and that includes people who don't own cars as well, uh, uh, would have otherwise driven their vehicle absent these services. So I think uh, you know we're talking about legality um, now. This map isn't where um, where Uber, Lyft, etc., have been recognized as legal. Uh, the green are states uh, where hitchhiking is completely legal and unregulated. Uh, yellow the yellow states have some restrictions, and then those uh, those handful of red states, it's outlawed. Um, we have, a, we have a thing called uh, these slug lines, where basically it's, it's, it's carpooling for commuters, um, where uh, that's completely unregulated. And then we have this, this great new service uh, that's helping college kids uh, get home over the holidays by connecting riders with drivers. These are all unregulated. Um, and the reason is, is because people aren't earning a profit. These are nonprofit enterprises. Um, and you can actually charge. If you were to charge someone for the gas, you know, have some reasonable charge related to the cost, you can even charge depreciation mileage. Uh, until you hit profitability, you are fine. You can charge that. Um, so it's when profit enters the question, uh, that's when the regulations appear. And this really shouldn't be surprising since many of these rules the explicit purpose was to increase the profitability of, uh, of these cartels at the expense of new market entrants uh, through these anti-competitive rules. I'm just going to go through the five types of, of regulation. We've got entry, medallions, license caps. Brink mentioned that. It's pretty obvious. Uh, keep supply low. Um, price, um, and you know, there's maximum fair regulation, but the, the anti-competitive price regulations are the minimum fair regulations. And these go back to the Jitneys, um, which were price competitive and offered superior service to the streetcars. So that's where those came from. And the taxi uh, cartels have, have, have also supported, uh, and the livery cartels have also supported uh, minimum fair regulations. These uh, really have less to do with, um, with limiting competition, although there, are, there, isn't, there are elements in there. It's just I think these are less important, but um, I'll go through them anyway. The service restrictions, so you've got uh, a bifurcated market, liveries that are dispatched, can't accept street hails, um, service requirements. Um, these are, so this is sort of uh, done under the guise of anti-discrimination, so you must serve an underserved area once per day. So, for, for instance, and then uh, quality. We've got driver training, inspections. Maybe you can either put insurance under that or that make that kind of a separate thing. Um, now, what we've seen so far, like in the in, in actual legislation um, uh, with respect to these uh, Uber, Lyft, uh, sidecar type of things, 
Um, we've seen uh, calls from these companies to support uh, transportation network company regulatory carve-outs. Um, this basically, it separates them from the existing taxicab regime um, and uh, basically says, here's a set of regulations, uh, these apply to you, taxis, you're stuck there. I think there's a few problems with this. The first is that mainly it ignores uh, these broader problems in the existing uh, taxi cab and livery industries. Those are just left unaddressed when we do these, these TNC carve-outs. Second one is I think, you know, we've seen some of these. You're getting to the point where you're basically codifying business models. Um, and, you know, given that these services are about five years old now, um, I think that's very dangerous to assume that we'll know what they look like in five years, 10 years, 15 years. Um, so that's a second problem. And the third problem, I think you're not ultimately dealing with the problem of regulatory capture. If these regulators still exist, particularly if they're still regulating the taxicab industry um, in the same way as it was before, um, you're still going to have those problems. And I'm going to talk about another aspect of, of that capture problem later. Why am I concerned about these, these carve-outs uh, stifling innovation? Well, it's because we're about to see in the coming decades uh, a very, very exciting new technology, automated vehicles. Um, potentially, we're not going to, you know, uh, we're going to get to a point where they're fully automated, so there's no driver. An empty cab can come and pick you up and take, where you, uh, take you where you want to go. Um, Right now, all of these rules that we have on the books assume there's going to be a driver, uh, and I really worry that we're going to see some of these services that rely on drivers uh, and the distributed fleet ownership model are going to start to push back against some of these new technologies. Uh, that's to say, could Uber become the next taxicab cartel uh, in front of uh, the regulators? I really don't want to see that. So I'm going to close with uh, just these a couple principles, uh, free market principles for reform, things that I would like to see. Um, deregulate, deregulate, deregulate. That's where it starts and ends with me. Um, I think we should be, instead of seeking regulatory parity, so bringing the regulations on uh, Uber, Lyft, and company up to where the taxi uh, the, the taxis are stuck, uh, we should see deregulatory parity. So start liberalizing the taxicab market as well if we're going to liberalize uh, you know, the, uh, the Uber-style services. The preemption shell games, and this goes back to the capture thing I, I just talked about, one of the things that we're seeing in legislation is that uh, the idea that if we just, if, you know, the taxi cab commission is, you know, or whatever is corrupt, therefore we're just going to kick it up to the public utilities commission at the state level. There may be some advantages of doing this way, this way although uh, things I've seen in California where the PUC is regulating these services don't give me very much confidence. Um, I think we should focus on the deregulatory side of things uh, and, and less so on, on the specific government agencies that are doing it, although, you know, of course, institutions do matter. And there may be a case for preemption. I'm just a lot more skeptical uh, than many free market folks. Um, don't codify business models, as I said. We don't know what things are going to look like uh, in the next few years, and we shouldn't lock these in, um, the, today's business models. We shouldn't do that anyway. But if we want to see some really innovative things, definitely don't do it. And then insurance, and I suspect um, Matthew is going to uh, talk some more about that. 
I think we've got, there's really no way around it. We need to have some short run requirements um, for these guys, have this level of coverage, and then go out and drive. But I think we should really look at insurance deregulation over a longer period, um, mainly because, um, you know, especially with automation, we're going to need dramatically different insurance products um, in, a, in, a, in a world where you have no drivers. Um, so I think those are the things we should consider. Uh, and I hope you do as well. Um, and with that, I will close. Thank you very much. Boone in the other order. See you. Trick me. Okay. Thanks, Boone. Thanks. Uh, thanks uh, for bring for signing us up. Thanks for leading off, Mark. And um, actually, I have a lot there I agree with. So. Um, I want to make three main points on Uber. Um, first, you know, I will say I think it's a great innovation. You know, Uber, sidecar, Lyft, so I don't want to just uh, highlight Uber. So, so I will say that and a little bit about that. Second, argue the case we do have to think about what is legitimate regulation. And again, I agree with Mark. Clearly, there's, uh, you know, we had very much a cartel industry that had captured the regulatory apparatus and was clearly using it for its own purpose. You know, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And then the third point I'd just say is that I think we can move forward. I don't think, you know, for the most part, I don't know if we're all going to end up agreeing here, but I think, you know, most of the issues, to my mind, aren't really insoluble if they're approached in good faith. And, you know, we'll have to see whether, you know, the, well, both sides, you know, the taxi, Uber, and Lyft, and the others are, are prepared to treat it in good faith. All right, well, first off, I mean, just, you know, I don't know anyone who's been very fond of the cabs in D.C., New York, any city I've been in. I mean, I don't know anyone that was raving about them. Um, so in that sense, you know, Uber and Sidecar, you know, Lyft, you know, as new entrants, they, they have really had a huge impact. And if, you know, the cabs that I take, I don't take them all the time, but I take them frequently enough, certainly they have been more reliable and cleaner and, you know, a lot, lot of good things you could say about that. A lot of times I've gotten up in the morning, uh, often have to go to the airport at five in the morning, and I live, I live in the city, but one of the more outlying areas. So if you're counting on a cab picking you up at five in the morning to take you to the airport and it doesn't show up, you're not very happy. Um, so I've had that happen in times past. Recently, I'm happy to say it hasn't. So whether that's Uber and the others, I don't know. But you know, my own personal experience that certainly improved. Um, so I think you know, having a, a lower-priced, uh, better-service competitor, I think that's a great thing. I think it's had a big impact, and you know, um, very, very happy about that. Um, but the second point, the issue of regulation, and again, Mark and Matthew and I may differ here, I know we'll differ. I, I do think there are a lot of legitimate regulations, which is not to say that we want the current regulations at all, but we do need regulations, uh, you know, of the cab system. And, you know, some of those are there and perhaps overly regulated in the existing structure, but I think they are real purposes. Mark alluded to one at the end of his talk, insurance. You know, originally that was an issue with Uber that, you know, many, many drivers are in effect driving without insurance. That may still be the case. I don't know where things stand on that now. But most people, most, you know, most of us who are not professional drivers, um, our insurance explicitly excludes driving professionally. So if we have a passenger in the car, we're, we're not an insured driver there. Okay, we're violating any number of laws. That person has no protection for an accident. That seems kind of straightforward for me. Now, it tends to be the case you require very high insurance for the existing taxi industry. Is that too much? Arguable point. I don't really know what the right number there is. But what I would say is it doesn't make sense to have one number for cabs and then say Uber could do whatever. So it seems to me want uniform policy on insurance. Um, drivers have to go through, you have to get a chauffeur's license. Is that excessive? Um, well, let me pick on my mother. 
My mother's in her 80s. She has a driver's license. She probably shouldn't. <laughs> Hope she's gone back to her. But I really would hate the idea of her driving someone around in an Uber car. So again, maybe she shouldn't be on the road, period, and maybe we should have higher standards for all drivers, but I certainly think it's appropriate we do not have someone like my mother driving someone around professionally. So again, we could argue whether we just need a higher standard for everyone or we need a higher standard for people who drive professionally, but I do want to make sure that those are, are safe drivers for the benefit of their passengers, benefit of the other people on the road. So again, to my mind, very legitimate regulation. Um, background checks. We require that people who uh, drive cabs, that they go through FBI background checks, make sure they don't have a history of being an armed robber, that sort of thing. That seems kind of common sense to me, you know, and again, we could say rely on reputation and, you know, you could know. I, I, I'm sorry, I come to an airport 2.30 in the morning. I've been traveling all day. I don't want to make sure that, you know, in that particular city that I've made sure I got a cab company that has a good reputation. I think it's a reasonable regulation to say that whoever's driving that, I have some assurance that they haven't had a recent criminal history, I think, or violent criminal history, I should say. I don't care if they got high. Um, so so, so that, that, that's a legitimate issue in my mind. Um, a few other points. Um, Handicap accessibility. Usually most cities require that some percentage of cabs, that they have some ability to serve handicapped people, you know, whether uh, it's some fixed percent, however it's done. That's a legitimate regulation in my view. Um, again, Uber could do that. You know, Uber, Lyft, they could do that. They could either ensure that a certain percent of their, their cars are handicap accessible or contribute to a fee. You know, you pay, you know, X amount, some percent of your, your, your amount. You know, again, that seems a doable, reasonable issue. Um, cash customers, uh, Uber's, you know, all credit card, uh, you know, that's fine. Most people have credit cards, but a lot don't, and particularly lower income people. Again, this is soluble. You know, you could have cards, you could have cash cards, or things you could do. But the point is we have to have a mechanism if you have a low income person doesn't have a credit card and they have to go to the doctor for an appointment or, you know, someone in their family. That should be possible, okay? And if all you have there is Uber and everything's by credit card, well, that's going to be a problem. Again, soluble problem, but it is a problem. It's a legitimate issue. Um, another point, uh, issue of discrimination, this goes both ways. You know, you'll hear endless stories of African-Americans not being picked up. You know, they, you know, cab sees them, and they don't want to pick up an African-American. Uber, you know, really good thing. They don't know your race. You click in, and, you know, that's a great thing. So, you know, but the other hand, you know, when you're ordering someone from, a, you're ordering a cab, an Uber from a largely African-American community, will they come? Okay, again, that's, that's an issue that, again, it's a problem with taxis, it, it's a problem with Uber. To my view, that's an appropriate issue for regulation. Um, labor regulations. Uh, when you have someone, you know, the Uber model, they're driving 10 hours uh, a week or month or whatever. Okay, there's that, you know, the employee, I don't know. I mean, that's open question. I'll just leave that at that. But you have a lot of Uber drivers that are for, driving 40, 50 hours a week. And to my view, those people are, look a lot like employees. You know, so I think that should be regulated, you know, as a, a work, uh, work, worker-employer relationship. Uh, that means that they should be covered by workers' comp. Uh, minimum wage, you know, at least on average should apply. Overtime regulations. Um, these are all things that should apply. And also workers, uh, you know, they should be able to bargain collectively. Uh, again, I don't know if it's exactly as a national labor relations uh, type relationship, but I think they should have that, have, have that ability. Um, a couple other things, you know, I'm not going to defend the medallion system, but I will say we probably do want limits on cabs. Uh, you know, cabs do create congestion. And, you know, if we had congestion fees in cities, maybe I'd feel differently, but for the most part, we don't. 
Um, so they do create congestion, they do create pollution. So I, I think that it is appropriate to have some limits. Um, the optimal wait time for a cab is not zero, to put it that way. So we shouldn't all be able to step out in the street and get the cab as we, you know, that, that, would, that would not be an efficient outcome. So those, to my view, are legitimate regulations, does not defend the, the current system of regulation at all, the ideas we want a uniform set of regulations and have them apply to everyone. Now, I'll just say, can you get from here to there? Um, just a few quick issues. Um, one, you know, the medallions, I think we were talking about this before we came here. I think the answer there is a, is a buyout system. You wouldn't necessarily pay 100%. And what I think would be the fairest thing to do is to take the case where you have individuals who might own a medallion. You'll have a lot of stories like this, an immigrant who, you know, worked a long time as a cab driver. They bought a medallion often on a mortgage. <laughs> that that would be bought out at very, some very high percentage, say like 90%. You have a cab company that might own 50 or 100 medallions. Well, you buy those out at 40 or 50, some lower number. They're, these people are in business, they understand risk. Um, so I think that's one issue. Um, the other story, and you know, we, Brink was mentioning Alan Kruger, I have a lot of respect for, he's a very good economist. Some of you may have seen a study that he did of Uber pay rates. And I thought this was very intriguing because he calculated, uh, these are rough numbers, but as I recall, he calculated that the average hourly revenue of an Uber driver was $16. And he compared that to the pay of a taxi driver. This is according to government data. He didn't independently calculate that. And that was around 10 or 10.50. So he goes, you know, there's a gap of six. Looks like they're coming out ahead. But keep in mind, this was revenue. Alan didn't hide this. You know, he said that he's comparing revenue with, with take-home pay. And he goes, we have to, of course, deduct costs. And he goes, well, what are their costs? He goes, well, we know the number of trips they make an hour. Uber gave that to him. Uber, Uber, Uber shared data with him is 1.3. He goes, but we don't know the number of miles per trip. Any problems with that? How come we don't know the number of miles per trip? Uber didn't share the data. OK, so that's not good faith. Now, I have no idea what that would have shown, but my guess is Uber did know what it would show, and that's why they didn't share the data. But the point is, they clearly had that data. They didn't share that, and it's a very essential part of a study, and the sort of study Alan Kruger was doing, and it didn't allow the basis for comparison. So that's an example, to my mind, of bad faith. And let me just give my bad story, or what I consider a bad story. Other people might view it differently. Um, Amazon. Um, Amazon's, you know, I shop on Amazon, so a lot of great things I could say about Amazon. But one thing that I think is really outrageous is that you have a lot of small stores we go down the street that might have sales of 100, 150, 200,000 a year, and they're all collecting sales tax. Amazon isn't. Okay, it varies state to state, but there's still a lot of it, states, including D.C., they don't collect sales tax. I can't see a justification for that. And I would hate to have a situation where we have a lot of people operating in the traditional cab system under very heavy regulatory burden, and then we have Uber saying, okay, none of that applies to us. We're a car order service. So that's my bad story. I hope we don't end up there. Um, and again, I think there's an easy path to uniform regulation, which I think would be the best route. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you all for coming, and thank you to Dean and Mark for that comment so far. I think this is a really interesting issue that is not going away, and uh, I'm glad that we get a chance to uh, talk about it. When I began at Cato, uh, and this was the first issue that I am, was 
uh, tasked with addressing. It seemed to me that the objections to ride-sharing broadly fell into issues relating to economics and regulations, and then also this uh, safety issue. And as Brink briefly mentioned, I wrote a, a paper on, on it, uh, Is Ride-Sharing Safe?, which is out front. And I, uh, there's going to be a little bit of overlap uh, with what Mark has said, and I also want to address a little bit about what uh, Dean has said. But to begin, I thought uh, I would discuss something that really struck me when I began doing work on this issue, which is that uh, being a taxi driver or being someone that picks up uh, strangers for a living is very dangerous, uh, and we need to uh, appreciate this. Uh, these are very familiar scenes. Um, if you're in New York or abroad, I felt as an Englishman giving a talk about taxis, I have to include the uh, iconic Hackney black cab here. Uh, and, you know, as, as uh, Mark does sometimes, he mentioned hitch, uh, hitchhiking. And this, this is a great quote from uh, the director of the International Taxi Drivers Safety Council, uh, which is, if you're working as a cab driver, you're really picking up hitchhikers for a living. Uh, which, and I don't know how many of you ever had a parent who said, I really recommend you hitchhike, or I really recommend that you uh, pick up that hitchhiker. Uh, but people do this every day, uh, and it's a dangerous job, and that should be appreciated. And it makes... The, uh, it's only one of the factors that makes the job dangerous. Another is uh, taxi drivers can reliably be assumed to be carrying cash. This is increasingly not the case as more taxi drivers use credit cards. Uh, but uh, the criminologist Marcus Felsen called cash the mother's milk of crime. A whole array of uh, homicides and assaults are motivated by the acquisition of cash. And the fact that taxi drivers are picking up strangers and they often carry cash really does make them an attractive target uh, for assaults and homicides. Uh, thankfully, the Bureau of Labor Statistics does keep records of people that are fatally injured or murdered on the job. And starting uh, the, this project, I was uh, perhaps like a number of other uh, Americans, despite the accent, I am actually a naturalized American. Um, but I, I, I thought of, well, you know, policemen must have a very dangerous job. They are often killed on the job. Firemen probably have a very dangerous job. Now. These figures are from 2006 and 2011, and in all but two of those years, uh, more taxi drivers and chauffeurs were killed on the job than police, policemen. And actually, as you can see, in 2010 and 2011, civilians died on the job at a higher rate than firefighters. Uh, these include homicides. In, in the paper that I wrote, I, uh, which I recommend you all pick up, by the way, um, above 50% of these fatal injuries uh, for taxi drivers are actually homicides. Uh, it's a very, very dangerous job. Uh, and I think that should be appreciated in any discussion about regulation on ride sharing. So to recap, uh, taxi driving is dangerous, uh, picking up strangers in cash. And something that I think is really interesting about Uber and Lyft is the way that they make this actually a safer experience uh, and addresses these issues. Um, I didn't know when I came here that I would be discussing uh, Dean's mother, but I have a great uh, chance to do this now. Uh, I'm sure she's a lovely woman. Uh, but something I wanted to uh, discuss is that uh, Uber, Lyft, and Sidecar get rid of the number one issue because the drivers and passengers are not anonymous. Uh, you, there's a two-way rating system, passengers rate drivers, drivers rate passengers, and if I took a ride with Dean's mother and thought she was a great driver, I would give her five stars, and perhaps, if not, a one star. Uber and Lyft, uh, the, probably the two most popular of the ride-sharing services, are very strict with the ratings of their drivers. Drivers regularly get booted if, uh, if their rating drops below a certain amount. 
which is a good thing, and also uh, drivers rate passengers. So if you're a belligerent drunk on U Street at 2 a.m. on a Saturday, uh, chances are you might not get a five-star rating from your driver and are less likely to be picked up in the future. And as uh, Dean mentioned, the payments uh, are made automatically. There's no cash. So it removes an incentive. It seems to my mind that if you wanted to commit a crime in an Uber car, you would have to want to be caught. Uh, it is a detective's dream uh, to have a, well, where was the perpetrator? Where was the victim? What were their identities? And what was the location of the crime? All of these are answered in the ways that Uber and Lyft carry out their business. And that should be uh, something that we all uh, praise. And Mark is right. I do want to uh, mention insurance because I think it is a legitimate concern that people ought to be uh, worried with. Uh, so to start off with Lyft, uh, what I want to discuss briefly is the, the, the degree of insurance that is in place when the app is on, but a, a driver has not found a passenger yet. Uh, this is the, the gray area that has really been highlighted in this debate. Uh, the unfortunate incident that always gets referenced is in San Francisco, a, a young girl was killed on uh, New Year's Eve after she was hit by an Uber driver who was in this uh, phase where he had the app on searching for uh, passengers, but he hadn't found one yet. Uh, now, the interesting thing about this is that what, what you see here, the degree of coverage, it applies if your personal insurance uh, doesn't kick in. So Lyft offers some sort of uh, umbrella coverage. And once a driver has accepted a ride request, there's a $1 million uh, per accident liability. Uber uh, has an almost identical uh, policy in place. But recently something very interesting happened, which I want to uh, discuss in the context of uh, ride-sharing uh, and insurance, mostly uh, that in Illinois, Washington, and California, Uber's partners with MetroMile, uh, which is offering paper-mile coverage. And this has, uh, well, before I describe in detail, I think it's uh, worth mentioning, this works uh, with MetroMile giving the driver a dongle that they can plug into their car, and it tracks the amount of miles driven that are for Uber, uh, and then also those that are personal. So they actually cover this controversial period one that uh, is, is often cited. Uh, so if you have MetroMile coverage in these states and you're driving around roaming, looking for a passenger, uh, you are covered by MetroMile if you go for it. Now, this is um, something we should actually expect. I think it's important uh, to, to highlight the fact that you know, the, the insurance industry is interested in this new and innovative uh, industry, ride-sharing, and it offers a lot of good services for them. But in order for products to be developed and in order for this to move forward, there needs to be a predictable market and there needs to be a way for insurance companies to feel comfortable. And at the moment, I think in many parts of the country and in the world, they don't. Uh, now, this is the uh, obvious question that uh, I get asked uh, a lot about. And I wanted to highlight a slide that was presented to the uh, San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency uh, by... Uh, San Francisco's Taxis and Accessible Services Interim Director, which is the impact. Uh, TNCs here refers to transportation network companies, and this the city in, uh, being addressed is San Francisco. Uh, and as you can see, uh, these are the average trips per car. Uh, by car, they mean cab. Uh, and as you can see, uh, I mean, timeline-wise, uh, UberX, which is Uber's ride-share service, launched in 2012, as did Lyft. That's the same year. Uh, and the number, of, uh, the number of trips has declined dramatically. And of course, uh, correlation isn't causation and everything, but I think it's worth keeping note of, uh, of this graph. Uh, 
Now, in order to compete, you know, taxis could copy a lot of what Uber and Lyft have developed, which makes it very attractive, like the rating system uh, and the personalized sort of service. And uh, my taxi, which, which I have on my phone, is a Germany-based company that allows uh, users to do this uh, in Washington, D.C. There's also uh, Halo, which some of you might have heard of, uh, offers this service. It's actually based in Europe. You can download it to Halo Taxi. But uh, interestingly... Uh, Halo left North America citing the competition between Uber and Lyft, saying that they couldn't handle it. Uh, and I mean, this, I, I think that uh, taxis are not, uh, you know, destined to go extinct. They might be, you know, becoming an endangered species. But in order to maintain their relevance, they really do have to crack into what makes Uber and Lyft so appealing. Um, so, I mean, to, to round off at the end here, uh, I want to discuss. Uh, you know, what, what, what Dean said, you know, there are legitimate issues here, but it seems to me that the question needs to be asked, is it the case that because something is a legitimate concern that the government has to regulate it? Uber and Lyft have both uh, shown that they are very interested in making sure that background checks are carried out, uh, which Dean mentioned. Uh, in the paper, I, I discussed that actually uh, Uber and Lyft's background check requirements are oftentimes stricter than many of the taxi companies in this country. It is also the case that their insurance coverage compares very favorably to taxi companies in this country. Uh, and so I think before we jump in and say, you know, should, uh, should, should the government be regulating this, we should ask if, if, uh, if ride-check companies are able to do this themselves. And it seems that they have demonstrated at the very least a willingness to change. Uh, Uber in particular, which has not enjoyed a good few months of uh, PR, have uh, you know, announced uh, that they're going to examine their data privacy policies as well as their background check policies in light of some disturbing news from India. Uh, in case you don't know, there was a uh, Uber driver in India who admitted to raping a passenger. Uh, although my research has been focused domestically, so I, I'm not sure on the background check uh, systems that are in place in India, uh, but I am interested in, uh, in the outcome of all of this. Uh, as Mark said, regulation comes with risk. I'm worried... Uh, not only with what Mark mentioned with regulatory capture, but I'm also worried about regulating a new innovative industry as if it's an old thing. Uh, so the idea that we should regulate these companies as if they're taxi companies seems to me incredibly misguided. Uh, to, to me, it seems that Uber, Lyft, and Sidecar have more in common with eBay and OkCupid than they do with taxi companies. These are technologies that allow riders to find passengers and passengers to find riders, and that should be something that we consider moving forward. And the stifling of innovation. Uh, at the moment, uh, I'm, I'm glad that Brink mentioned the Ubertarian. It seems to me that uh, libertarians spend a lot of time praising these disruptive technologies. But as, as Mark said, in the future, they might engage in behavior that is contrary to the principles of a free market. And that is something that we ought to worry about. And uh, something that I know Mark and I have discussed before is that at the moment, we know Uber as a... Uh, a technology company that's interested in transportation, and there have been all these carves out uh, for TNCs. But what happens in a few years if Uber decides to compete with logistics companies like FedEx or UPS? Is the transportation network company designation going to be helpful then? It just seems to me that this is all uh, has the potential to be a giant mess. And I think the the way that this should be addressed going forward is 
to deregulate the taxi industry. I think the, we really need an environment where taxis can compete with these new companies. I, I think what Dean said is very interesting about uh, the, the takings of uh, people who have invested in medallions are understandably upset. You know, they've invested uh, time and money uh, into what they thought was a secure job, and uh, that ought to be considered. Uh, those are the comments I had prepared. I look forward to uh, hearing questions, and thank you again for coming. Okay, I'm going to open it up for questions now. Uh, there will be somebody coming around with a mic. If you could uh, give your name and affiliation and uh, make your question end with a question mark. Uh, right here. Uh, Carl Zabo with NetChoice. Uh, Dean, first, I, I do have to address uh, something that you pointed out, because when you mentioned online sales tax, my, my ears, of course, definitely perked up on that. And the suggestion is that the new entrants are competing unfairly, that Amazon doesn't collect sales tax in DC, uh, Lyft, Sidecar, and Uber are competing unfairly when it comes to uh, transportation. But Amazon collects anywhere they have a physical presence, just like every other brick and mortar. And the difference about TNCs is they can't engage in street hails like cabs can. But a general question for the, the panel is twofold. One, with respect to medallions, much like a, a stock or anything that you purchase, you know, I can buy land, it goes up and down in value depending on what happens. Is that just maybe the course of things? So should we pay them back? And then the second question is with regard to period one and the moral hazard of having TNCs and forcing TNCs to provide insurance when the app is on. So I could just drive around all day with the Uber app on, not picking anyone up, and enjoy free insurance coverage. So I was hoping you could address both those issues. I'll start on that. Uh, for, first off, in, in terms of Amazon, I mean, to my mind, the point of, I mean, I understand, I'll give credit, say, for the most part, my understanding is they're following the law. And the law says where you have a physical presence, and the big exception to that was mail order companies. To my mind, that was a mistake because the whole point was this is a way states collected revenue, and it really didn't matter whether you had the physical presence or not, so I think that was a mistake. Now, it didn't matter that much because people didn't order that much from mail order companies. They are ordering a lot over the Internet. So I'm not accusing them of breaking the law. I'm saying that we should have adjusted the law. Now, whether they're complying with the law or not everywhere, I don't really know. Um, so uh, that, that, to my mind, is a serious uh, – I don't see any, how anyone believes in a free market can think it makes sense that Amazon could sell you all this stuff over the web. You don't ha they don't have to collect tax on it, whereas you know, if you go to your corner store, you do have to pay the tax. Um, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, the, the Uber story with uh, – you know, in terms of the insurance, I guess I would go a step the other way that I would actually be – I would want that person insured for the time they're driving around covered under Uber because let me take the case I think would come up quite frequently. Someone takes someone to the airport, you know, Uber driver takes someone to the airport, and then they have to drive back without anyone in there. Well, that, in effect, to my view, is commercial driving. That's why they're making that trip. So I think that should be Uber's responsibility. Um, so I would, I would say they, they should be covered under that. And I'm trying to remember, you, I should have written down your third. Medallions. The medallions. Yeah, I, I think this is a case where, you know, the state has, in effect, indicated that they were going to limit supply. And, you know, it's backing away from that. So I think the state, in effect, made a commitment that's distinctive. You know, you are going to open a store, and it turns out, you know, Walmart opens across the street from us, and 
you know, were, you know, because they didn't make us any promise. And, you know, in the case of medallions, I think there's a, there was a clear um, promise that they were going to limit supply. And if you have Uber, Lyft, and Sidecar, supply is not limited. So I think there is an obligation there. It's a, it's a form of a taking. Um, yeah, oh, I, I guess on Amazon, I just want to say that um, Amazon supports the Marketplace Fairness Act, which would authorize states to, uh, to collect internet sales taxes. And I'm not going to get into the, the, the virtues or vices of that, but they are supportive of the federal legislation that would let states do uh, what I think Dean wants them to do. Um, on medallions, um, I'm sympathetic to Dean's arguments uh, in favor of a buyout, but my support for a buyout largely has to do with uh, making this, making a compromise so we can actually get rid of these terrible, this terrible system that exists. I think that's the only way out of it. Unless you can buy off the constituency that, that supports it and they're willing to fight to the death to keep these privileges, um, that's pretty much the only way you can do it. So mine is a very, it's a political calculation. And then on the insurance question, I mean, I can see both sides of it. I I'm, I'm tend to support light rules for insurance. Um, and the issue you raised, I think, is important. But uh, the insurers have made the point that you know uh, uh, it's not people aren't randomly driving around uh, to pick people up. They're going to go where the people are. Uh, they're going to go to they're going to go downtown where there's nightlife uh, to uh, you know the sports stadiums and things like that. So there is a question there, and that's I mean I think that's the the insurer's biggest issue is how do we deal with this problem, and that's why they support what they do. I don't know if they're right. I don't know if they're wrong, but I think there's um, both sides need to just come to an agreement, get it over with. Uh, we're going to have these rules, and then focus on insurance liberalization because I think there's potentially future products that we may not have now um, that would much better suit this industry. So, um, I just a uh, brief comments on uh, medallions. There's not too much I want to add to that. Although I would urge every, anyone uh, in the audience and uh, watching online to read. Uh, an article by my colleague Peter Van Doren who wrote about this very issue and he came down on the side that I believe he's, that uh, it's not a taking uh, but I certainly understand the arguments made. Uh, the, the, the question you raised is interesting about the, the insurance, whether uh, could someone turn on the Uber app all day and just rely on that coverage. Uh, I don't think it's a realistic uh, situation only because Uber has a data on uh, the app and everything. And I don't think a driver who engaged in that sort of behavior would be treated very well by Uber and deactivation would be a very real risk. Uh, so I don't think that's uh, something to worry about. <clears throat> Let me just uh, chime in with a brief digression on the, uh, on the uh, tax asymmetry between online and brick and mortar sellers. Uh, from personal experience, I know this is an issue about which libertarians disagree. About 15 years ago, I edited a Cato paper defending the uh, internet tax exemption, defending the physical presence <laughs> requirement. Uh, as uh, an important constraint on state's taxing power and as contributing to fiscal federalism and tax competition. Uh, uh, I thought the arguments were sound and plausible. wasn't 100% sure whether I agreed with them, but I thought it was <clears throat> worth uh, publishing. Uh, but getting it through the review chain, uh, I encountered ferocious opposition from our then chairman, Bill Niskanen, who thought it was sheer madness that anybody could think uh, that this tax asymmetry made any kind of sense. So... Uh, <laughs> I always like Bill. <laughs> uh, anyway, next question, Adam. I am Adam Thier with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Brink, I remember that process well. <laughs> yeah. I happen to be the author of that paper you're talking about, and I remember Bill's pushback. It was pretty uh, vociferous. 
Um, <clears throat> so uh, I want to ask the panelists to drill down on the question of liability in light of uh, two recent cases that are pending in district courts in California, uh, where the question of whether or not the uh, folks who drive for Uber and Lyft are independent contractors or if they're actual employees. And the judges in those cases have expressed skepticism uh, at the claim that they're independent contractors. And his logic, the logic of both these gentlemen, these judges, is based on a principle really out of the field of law and economics of least cost avoider, which is that Uber and Lyft have a lot of knowledge about what's going on in these cars. They put out a lot of stipulations about if you're going to drive for us, here's what you have to do. And when you're in the car, they know what's going on. Um, so there's a lot of information that Uber and Lyft have now about these transactions that previously wasn't possible. And so in the field of law and economics, usually the onus of liability will shift as you obtain greater knowledge. Um, is that the case that we're going to see Uber, Lyft, and other sharing economy operators, because they have so much knowledge of these transactions, come to have greater and greater liability for the uh, activities uh, that happen in, in these systems? Um, I think generally when you're talking about these this sort of smart car world that we're getting into where they have all this data, I think yes. And I know, you, you Adam, you uh, the, the paper that Brian Walker Smith did on um, this sort of proximity-based liability, the fact that as they keep collecting more and more data, uh, they're likely to face, uh, they're going to heighten foreseeability, face greater liability, um, and their response to it will probably be collect more data. Um, and you're going to see this sort of arms race uh, sort of um, uh, go over time. At least that's, that, that was the, the, the thought there. I think that's very possible. I don't know if we're ever going to, you know, I think we're going to see shifting liability over time as, as, as technology evolves. You know, this happens in all sorts of uh, arenas. But I think that's absolutely what we're what we're going to see. Uh, I don't want to add too much to that, but but the the question made me think of uh, the the problems that could arise in another sharing economy field, which uh, companies like Airbnb do similar things. They recommend that people, when they host in their homes, that they have certain uh, that they have carbon monoxide detectors and fire, det you know, smoke detectors and all these other sort of things. So I'm a little worried. I mean, I'm not sure if I feel comfortable living in a world where Airbnb hosts are considered employees. Uh, it might be the case that we really do have to come up with some sort of new regulatory category for people that work in the sharing economy. But as I, Mark and I said earlier, I mean, that comes with a whole set of different uh, worries. And just to note that the stakes of whether these workers are employees or independent contractors uh, go well beyond kind of transportation-specific issues. Are, uh, are, is Uber on the hook for, uh, for health insurance, et cetera? Uh, so, uh, I think uh, uh, Dean uh, mentioned that there's <clears throat> there seems to be a continuum here, and there are people uh, who are Uber drivers who look more like employees, and people who don't look like employees at all. And where one draws the line is uh, is unclear. But the, the stakes go beyond things that Uber has a specific expertise. In. Yeah. Uh, the lady in the center in the back. Jana Linet with AARP's Public Policy Institute. And first, I just want to say thank you to all the panelists. I think you've done an excellent job getting out in front of this moving target and done some really great research and presented the arguments uh, very clearly. Um, I think I and AARP see that there's a lot of potential for TNCs to come into the market and really help to provide transportation services to older adults. 
um, with all of the caveats that have been discussed yet today. So I might recommend that there be another consideration. I'm not sure it falls under the, uh, Mr. Baker's list of regulatory needs because I think it probably could be done outside of the regulatory environment. But as we look at these drivers helping to meet this very severe shortage of transportation for people with, who are unable to drive, to make sure those drivers have the adequate training for being able to provide good service to individuals. This um, goes both toward understanding some of older adults' needs uh, in transportation, but also looking at persons with disabilities, what their needs are. There's been some legal filings saying that you know a driver didn't accommodate a, accommodate a seen eye dog, which is you know it's against the law to uh, prohibit that. And I think a lot of these drivers just don't have any idea what the law is, and there needs to be some really good driver training. And I think perhaps through online training and driver certification, like you get extra brownie points, you can look up a driver to see whether they've met those certification requirements before you choose who you want to go with. Might be one uh, one option for that. Thank you. Yeah, I think that point's very well taken, and it, it fits an extension of the point I was saying before about handicap accessible. And, you know, I, I actually, you know, again, it's not like we're doing a great job on that now. I once had occasion to go home with a, a neighbor who's blind, has a seeing eye dog, and we wanted to catch a cab. And he goes, here, why don't you go out and hail the cab, you know? And, and that's exactly what happened, because he was saying, you know, the law is, of course, they have to take him, but they see him with the dog, and you know, they just go right by. So, um, you know, so it, it's, it's, far, it's far from the case that we have a perfect system for that now, but that is something that I think is, again, whether you want to say it's a regulatory answer, I'm, you know, but it is, it is an issue that we have to deal with. It might well require regulation, but if it can be done without, you know, I'm not intent on regulating everything in the world. Yeah, uh, so interesting question. Uh, the it reminded me of the the uh, I think it was a few months ago when Uber announced that they were going to allow uh, family Uber with uh, cars that had car seats in them, uh, so that if you had children that you could you could use it. I can imagine a situation in which TNCs uh, do decide to you know make make their services more friendly to people with with disabilities. The problem is that you know fundamentally, if it's ride sharing, so Uber does have. You know, black car services. That that all aside, with ride sharing, it is an individual's car. Uh, but you know, the, the TNCs like Uber and Lyft, they could provide a carrot by as you as you imply. You know, you could get extra review points or a different way of reviewing people. So, uh, I, I think there is an incentive out there for uh, ride share companies to do this. But I also think that uh, the fact that they currently perhaps are not very good at doing this provides an opportunity for taxis that really can highlight the fact that they offer this service and remain competitive. I just want to note that this sounds like it could be more of an entrepreneurial opportunity than a looming regulatory issue. That is, that there's a market out there of people who need to get around and can't get around on their own, and, uh, and they're not well served by traditional taxi services. Uh, so this is an opportunity for, uh, for folks to uh, make money by uh, helping these people out. And it was striking to me, these stats on the limited degree to which uh, ride-sharing is is expanding the market. That is, it's, it seems to just be substituting for, for taxis rather than, uh, rather than expanding the universe of people who are uh, paying people to drive them around. Uh, because my own personal experience, the first time I started hearing about Uber, 
uh, was from people who were exultant uh, because they were 20-somethings who lived in transitioning neighborhoods uh, where it was often very dicey to find taxis, and now they could, uh, uh, they could call Uber. Uh, uh, and I know myself, the first time I ever used uh, uh, Uber was going out to uh, an appointment in the Burbs where I would never find a taxi to come back to D.C. if my life depended on it, and now I could just call Uber, and isn't that wonderful? So it, it's odd to me that, that it isn't, <clears throat> uh, that we're not seeing that in the stats. But. Yeah, and Brink uh, helped jog my memory about what I, what I was going to say in response to your question. Uh, absolutely. I think there's potential market opportunities there. I think there are some legacy regulations, um, some in part to design, uh, designed to protect government-owned and operated paratransit services uh, from competition. So we may, you know, going back to the Jitney, um, I don't know how transit really... Um, you know, it was the transit lobby that initially uh, succeeded in getting all these anti-competitive regulations on the books. Um, the transit lobby still does oppose um, certain uh, competition with it. So um, perhaps, and you know, it's a it's a heavily heavily unionized uh, uh, government sector. So I think you know, potentially looking at further deregulation and then letting entrepreneurs uh, take a stab at this is is a way to go. Hi, I'm John Paslaco, an intern with Cato. Uh, questions for Mr. Baker. How can you justify requiring Uber drivers to accept cash, uh, which not only flies in the face of their whole business model, uh, without uh, analogously forcing other uh, electron, electronic commerce services for, uh, to accept cash, like Amazon, from the same type of person? I actually wasn't saying I'd force Uber drivers to, to, to uh, accept cash. What I was saying is we have to make sure we have provisions for people that are going to be cash customers to take cabs. So what that means is that either we ensure that there's some sort of universal cash card that we could think just about everyone has, has access to. It's not impossible. It can be done. Or alternatively, you could assess Uber a fee that would subsidize cash cash transactions. Um, I think it is important that people have access to cabs because you do have a lot of people that, you know, they don't, they're older people, uh, people who are frail, they're not able to take other forms of transportation. They can't walk a mile to the bus. So we have to make sure those people have some form of transportation. So that doesn't require every Uber driver take cash. It just requires that we have a system in place that ensures that those people have access to transportation. Yeah. Um, a quick, I, I, I think, uh, moving back on that, uh, I mean, at the moment, uh, in order to use Uber, you need a, a smartphone. So, I mean, it, it's hard to imagine someone having a smartphone and not having a credit card. Uh, I mean, maybe there is a small population of people out there where that's the case. Uh, but it, I suppose the, the, the question is how many of these people do exist and how, given Uber's model, would they be able to implement it? Well, again, I'm not talking about an Uber as an option to cabs. I'm talking about if we envision Uber, Lyft basically driving out traditional cab services. Okay. So okay. That, that's, that's the world I'm talking about. Right. Um, you know, I'm, I don't think Uber should have, you know, have, to, have to take um, cash, um, although I, I'm skeptical. I, the government has tried this. I think a good example is the capital bike share system, which requires that you have a credit card uh, to use it or a subscription. Uh, unfortunately, you know, DC uh, does have a large unbanked population, primarily east of the river, where there's also not a whole lot of uh, 
bike, uh, uh, bike share stations. Um, what the D.C. government did uh, was they basically set up one location where you could go in and apply for at a, at a specific bank and get one of these cards if you wanted to use um, – uh, the bike share system. Um, problem is, is that's it, it was incredibly inconvenient. The people where uh, you know, sort of uh, where they lived, uh, is there's not a ton of infrastructure there supporting it. I guess I'm just skeptical. You know, this is maybe something for government to take a look at to get the unbanked have a card so they can use this, and I guess also maybe have a smartphone or whatever. However, we're dispatching these things and sort of doing that. I just government doesn't have a very good track record of actually meeting the needs of the unbanked. So I guess I'm Skeptical of them being actually, you know, able to pull it off. Right here. Uh, thank you all for the talk today. Uh, I'm Jen Lee from Hudson Institute. I have a question about the countries where Uber is illegal. Like some even has a uh, bounty for the Uber drivers. Like how how uh, do you think? Like in the end of the story, like the world would have to embrace sharing economy and. Uber, like the other disruptive technologies, or like how do you envision the process would be like of opening up, like especially the countries with strong strong taxi unions or like interest groups and political issues? Um, no, I, I think anyone who's following this issue, if you think it's hard for Uber here, I mean, really just look over the Atlantic into Europe, it's really been astonishing. Uh, the Now... How, that, which is in contrast, by the way, to uh, Airbnb, uh, which has had more problems uh, here than in Europe. But uh, the, uh, you know, when I first started working on this, I, I remember the moment when I thought, wow, you know, uh, uh, taxi cartels are a real thing, uh, and, and they they're not fans of competition. But I think in long term, uh, they're not going to have problems just because. Uh, Everyone should uh, just just remember that people who run these regulatory bodies are eventually going to be populated by people that grew up with these things. Uh, and the, it's going to be very, even a self-interested bureaucrat is going to find it difficult in that environment. Uh, now, uh, I mean, the, Europe, is, which is the, the area I know best, there are a whole range of different regulatory problems they had. In, in Germany, I believe that there's a regulation that prohibits uh, private drivers from charging more than gas price if they're giving a ride. I believe that's the case in London. The the black cab uh, drivers were complaining that the, the the iPhone counts as a meter because in in London, uh, black cabs are the only cars that are allowed to have these to, to accept street hails, um, all these different sorts of things. But I think long term, I'm an optimist about that. I just want to note with regard to the situation in India, how interesting it is that this single rape, which is a horrible, horrible crime, has called into question the whole legality of the Uber business model there, whereas the string of ghastly gang rapes on public buses does not seem to have called into question whether <clears throat> that mode of transportation is somehow or another legally suspect. Right here. I'm Art Gazzetti. I'm with the American Public Transportation Association, the, the transit systems in the country. The, 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 this technology-driven mobility is changing the world so much. And, and uh, transit systems, uh, I've worked for for my whole 36-year career, um, have to change too. Uh, and, you know, the way we would look at it in terms of, you know, this is all of a system of integrated mobility. It should connect with one another. It, uh, it together provides options that can, you know, it can give you the choice in life perhaps to get by with, you know, uh, two cars instead of three in your, in your driveway and, and, and things like that. So that, that's the way I view it. 
I view that the transit systems need to change a little bit too, but we would view it almost like a part of a system that works together, et cetera. So anyway, I just thought I'd offer my view and see if there's any reactions to that. I, I think that's a very important point for existing transit systems. Um, you know, we have the, you know, long had first last mile problems. This can solve some of those problems. And really, you know, there's some research going on right now about automated taxis. Really, I mean, so there are, yes, absolutely. Like this is augmenting the system. This may not be, you know, even if we get to a fully automated world, particularly in denser places, this may not be a transit killer. Um, and I think it can help a lot. I know I have taken the Metro before to a station and then hopped in an Uber or a, or a taxi. So yeah, I think that's, that's, uh, I think that's a very important point. Right here in front. Uh, James Sang. This is a question from Mr. Feeney because he showed a picture of a London cab. Um, there's a question of exactly how much a driver should know. Mm -hmm. um, London, of course, is famous for the, the quote, the knowledge, and, and, and very sophisticated uh, cabbies have a very sophisticated understanding of the local geography. In principle, GPS is supposed to make that obsolete and I guess an Uber driver should be able to find where he's going with his GPS and stuff like that. But there is something to be said for having a feel for what the local geography is. And how does, it, how does that get put into Ubers or other transportation systems? Um, yeah, so, so for those of you who, who don't know, the, the uh, London black cabs, in order to become a cab, you have to pass an exam called the knowledge, um, I don't know how many people watching have been to London, but it's a really big city and um, with a lot of street and Right, and, and they have to memorize this, and it takes years, uh, and then you, uh, once you pass this exam, you, you, uh, you become a taxi driver. And it is true uh, that London cabbies have an you know, encyclopedic knowledge of the city. And what I think, uh, and this has been brought up many times, is doesn't GPS just, just kill this? Uh, and I think the answer to that is a maybe, but it's not an obvious yes, only because anyone who's got into a... Uh, London cab can tell you that they they know that every little side street, every little alley, and uh, GPS is oftentimes slower than uh, someone who really does know the city like the back of their hand. And that, I mean, to me, this makes me think that there might be customers out there who prefer that to ride sharing. If you are in the center of London and you want to get to your hotel, it might actually be quicker to take a black cab. Someone who you know, it works full time and only does ride sharing on weekends might really be a poor driver for a place like London when compared with someone who has spent years studying the city. So that might be a comparative advantage that taxi drivers have. Uh, yeah. I also put the sinister side on that. More than once I've had a cab driver that's tried to take me a very indirect route, which I will know if it's a city, if it's DC, I know it's an indirect route because I've lived here a long time. But obviously if I were a tourist, you know, I would be taken for a ride. And I will just note that the, the, the London requirement seems to be fairly unique. Uh, certainly no such requirement in D.C. for D.C. taxi drivers, as I can attest. Uh, right here. Samar Chatterjee, Safe Foundation. I'll address it to Mr. Feeney since you, your presentation as well as the pamphlet you put out focused on uh, cab uh, ride-sharing and safety. 
um, and especially talking about, and your definition of cab was that they're picking up hitchhikers, and that was an interesting definition. I never thought about that. And I've stopped uh, picking up hitchhikers since 1974 when I picked up somebody who was going to the local prison because her, her husband was a bank robber or something. And I said, my gosh, I could have been hijacked and dead. He, she could have taken my car. And I said, no more. In those days, giving a ride to hitchhikers was very, very popular in this country in 1974. And everybody, I mean, we all got rights even when we were stranded somewhere. Given that, uh, what do you think can be done to make the life of these cab drivers much safer? Like you compared, your statistics showed they're as, as heroes as our cops are when they get shot. We do such a hoopla, you know, mm -hmm. in our <laughs> media. And everybody says, oh, a hero died and all that kind of stuff. And with candlelight vigils and, and the cops uh, raiding a whole area of, because they want to find one killer of this cop, you know. Given that, what can be done to reduce their... Well, as I, as I pointed out in the, in the presentation, they could copy some of the innovations that ride-sharing companies have come up with, which is to remove, as I pointed out, the anonymity of the passenger. Uh, you're more likely to murder someone if, you, if your target doesn't know who you are, I suppose. Uh, and there's also uh, the, uh, the cash uh, uh, aspect of it that I pointed out. Uh, Taxi, taxi cabs are increasingly using credit card machines. Uh, that is certainly the case. So if, if taxis move to a more cashless system, uh, that's going to make things safer. There's also you know, basic things like inserting physical barriers between passengers and drivers. But I mean, I think, as, as I pointed out earlier, the reason they are such attractive targets, uh, taxi drivers, why they are such attractive targets for assaults and homicides are that they can reliably be uh, assumed to be carrying cash and you can reliably... Uh, assume that police officers won't know who you were, who you are when they arrive on the scene. Uh, so if you can remove the anonymity and you can remove a major cash incentive, I think you could see a decline in the number of uh, taxi drivers who are the victims of homicides. Sure. Uh, video cameras uh, might help. There's a range of literature out there about the effect that surveillance can have on people's behavior, uh, but having someone on camera is by no means uh, an assurance, and then the camera has to be on all the time. And I mean, there's a whole range of different issues there. Uh, but I think removing anonymity is one of the crucial things that could be done. In the far back. Uh, given this, hi, um, I'm Raj Boy, IT professional, IT resident. Yeah, uh, given uh, these ride-sharing companies are having um, issues in different parts of the world, where do you think they're not having any issues? No backlash? Any country? Uh, well, the only uh, international ride-sharing service I'm aware of is... Uh, Uber, which is in, I mean, dozens and dozens of countries. Uh, the place that has been most uh, friendly, I, I think, and from my knowledge, and, and I've been mostly domestic, uh, but whenever I read about the backlash abroad, it always, to me, seems harsher than it is here. Uh, I think, you know, despite all the problems that we have here, uh, the United States, so although there is a huge variance within the United States, you have places like Las Vegas and then the city we're sitting in now, the, there's a whole range of differences. But I think that somewhere in the United States is probably 
going to be found to be the, the most rideshare friendly in the world. Although there could be, I don't know if any of the other panelists have heard of. Probably, probably Indianapolis. An interesting thing happened when, when Uber uh, came in there. Um, so I mentioned in my presentation that Indianapolis in the mid-90s uh, deregulated their taxi market and they created a, a, a few separate new categories, public and private uh, for hire vehicles. Uh, they asked the code enforcers there, well, what do we have to do to comply with that? And they came back a few weeks later and said, nothing. We have no regulatory class to put you in. So that was, and you know, that's, it's a, on, I think it's still an ongoing dispute, but it may well be Indianapolis, um, thanks to their mid-90s deregulation of the taxi market. Okay, we'll do one more question. Uh, gentleman in the back. Uh, thank you. My name is Hermes from the OWS. My I have a, uh, one question and a comment. The question is, what are the pitfalls of uh, uh, automatic driving? And uh, about the taxi, I think he, uh, Mr. Sweeney, Finney, uh, portrayed the taxi man as a real victim, but sometimes the opposite exists that I saw in New York City, many cases. The case of this... Uh, a woman raped by an Indian driver, and other cases. What will be your comment about that? I wouldn't. Uh, could you repeat the question? Yeah, the first question was just generally, what are the pitfalls of driverless cars? Oh, it's a big question. Oh, uh, a different forum. But. The 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 big pitfall of driverless cars that I've heard of is there might be a shortage of organs for transplant because a vast majority of them come from automobile <laughs> accidents. Uh, so uh, something like ninety three percent ninety three percent of fatal car accidents uh, in the United States are caused by human error. Uh, I think it, it's safe to assume that driverless cars will cut that down. But I also know that roughly seventy percent of organs that get transplanted in American hospitals come from auto victims. Uh, so that that might be a, a pitfall potentially. Um, <laughs> When it comes to, uh, I, I hope I address the question uh, adequately. The so so the issue of yeah, uh, taxi driver. What was, I mean, the 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 incident in India that you're referring to. Um, I, I I don't know the uh, the background track system in India, uh, and there have also been incidences of rideshare drivers in the United States behaving very poorly. Uh, the, the, the thing to, to keep in mind here is that no, no background check will ever adequately predict future behavior necessarily. Uh, and it also should be kept in mind that uh, not all taxi drivers are angels either. There are definitely incidences of taxi drivers assaulting passengers. Uh, and, and So when, when considering the safety question, always keep in mind no one knows the future and uh, it's not as if the, com the prime competitors are uh, perfect either. Um, I would say one of the main, the, to really just address the um, self-driving car thing, um, the main problem right now is, is this tension we see between uh, sensor tech proponents, so everything's based on onboard sensors and those who are looking at more connected vehicle, whether that's vehicle to vehicle or vehicle to infrastructure technologies. Um, v to V, V or V to I, and, yeah, and V to V would let you see things that the sensors can't uh, because the sensors rely on line of sight. So having both, that's probably to maximize safety uh, and things like that. That's the that's the best way to go. But the right now there is kind of an either or debate going on among some folks, uh, at least for the interim, uh, and that's what I see is sort of a. It's a it's it's a minor problem with this thing, but if, if there is a pitfall, it's probably it's probably that. 
Yeah, I can't speak on, uh, you're way more up to date on where self-driving cars are, but uh, in terms of the background checks, you know, again, it just seems to me you need some, it's not going to be perfect because, again, we could give someone a background check, sterling record, and they could still commit a horrible crime. So, you know, but I do want something. Great. Thanks uh, again to our panelists for their presentations, and thanks all of you for coming.